Welcome to Sunday Life. In every episode, I make this introduction that our focus is to let the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, live in us and change our hearts so that we reflect the image of God to others in our daily lives. We'll go through and understand this more as we go along, but the emphasis really there is in allowing and letting God's Word live in our lives and to let it change our hearts and our minds so that we reflect the image of God, the image of Christ, in the things that we do and our actions that we have towards others. In the beginning, God created man. God created Adam and Eve in his image. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1, 26, 27. We can reflect the image of God to the world because Jesus is the image of God. And Jesus lives in us as believers. And that life that he lives, we reflect that image of him through our lives to others. In the last episode, I showed that the death, the biblical death, is separation from God. Therefore, biblical death is a spiritual experience. There is no physical death because the physical body isn't spiritual. The body doesn't die. It just stops working for one reason or another. Did you ever stop to think that your body, your organs, your bones, your muscles, your skin, your hair, it's all made up of cells that are micro-machines, miniature computers, so to speak. These cells are small power plants that operate by chemical reactions, one chemical reacting to another chemical. Cells may appear as alive, but they're not alive. It's just like artificial intelligence. We can make a computer appear to be alive because it reacts like a human, but it's not alive. It's just ones and zeros interacting through electronics. It may appear to be alive, just like the cells in our body. They're not alive. Cells interact with one another to produce our our bodies, according to our DNA blueprints. God created Adam and Eve from the dust of the ground, not alive. The dust was not alive that he created the human body from. Then he breathed life into man, and he became a living being. The breath of God is spiritual, pneuma. Your life is spiritual, not physical. If we die, we die spiritually, not physically. If we live, we live spiritually, not physically. When I say life is spiritual, I don't mean ethereal, like some vapor, or or that it's formless. I mean it's animated and empowered by the Spirit of God. And I'll explain more of this as we go along. That's This is the direction that we're headed through this series. When we get to that and we get to talking about the resurrection, we'll see what I'm talking about. 
So what causes someone to die spiritually? We die spiritually when we're separated from God. What causes us to be separated from God is disobedience to God and therefore sin. What causes us to sin? It's to know what causes us to sin first that we have to see so that we can understand what sin is. We aren't sin. Sin is, sin is a force. It's an effect upon us. I've entitled this episode, The Gateway to Sin and Death. Everyone has a different definition of sin. Even people who read and study the scriptures and they have the same, they may know, may know the same truth about what causes sin, but they everyone has a different definition. In 1 John 3, 4, we see John's definition. He says, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now here the Apostle John says that sin is breaking the law. Lawless, lawless means to be a lawbreaker. It doesn't matter what the law is if you break it. You're a lawless person. That's sin. Adam and Eve were given one rule, one law. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. Was God testing Adam and Eve? Did God cause their temptation? No. Listen to what the Apostle James says about temptation and sin from James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Now let's look at and unpack this verse or these verses a little closer and see what James is saying. He says from verse 12, blessed is the one who endures trial. The, the word trial there means an evil solicitation. It could be a trial that we're enduring. It could be a temptation. It's an evil solicitation that we are enduring because we're being solicited by evil. Because when he has stood the test, meaning passed the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted, meaning solicited with evil by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, God can't be solicited by evil. So he's not soliciting us with evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed, or the word enticed means to be beguiled, to follow an allure by his own evil desire, his own that desire being a longing for what is forbidden. Verse 15, 
then after desire, that longing for what's forbidden, has conceived, meaning it invades us, within us, and captures us, it, and when it's done that, it gives birth, or it bears fruit, to sin, that lawlessness, that law-breaking. And when sin, lawlessness, is fully grown, meaning it's finished its purpose, it gives birth or transforms a transformation. It gives birth to death. It transforms our life into death, transforms it by making us spiritually dead, separating us from God. Now, this is exactly what we saw with Adam and Eve. God gave them one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Evil's in the name. <laughs> God's don't eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. It's right there. Did God tempt them? No. They were beguiled by the allure of the tree. It was good for food. It was delightful to look at. It was desirable for obtaining wisdom, all alluring things. And these things were what tempted Adam and Eve. It was their own longing for what they were told they couldn't have that invaded their hearts and their minds and captured, gave birth, obsessed them. And once that happens, when the seeds of desire are planted, then the fruit of their act was as a compulsion to break the law, to be a lawbreaker. Then, when lawlessness was complete, their communion with God was shattered, and they became separated from God and outcast from life into death. It's kind of like we've all heard the Jewish uh, saying, a child does something that the parents don't approve of, and the, and the parents say that child is dead to them, right? Separated from them. They can't accept them anymore. They're they're ousted from their home. The child is dead to them. Is the child physically dead to them? No, the child is still alive, just not with their parents. They're spiritually dead to their parents. That's what this is like. So how do we overcome this process of sin resulting in being separated from God and consigned to death? We don't. Not on our own. Adam and Eve couldn't overcome their lawless decision that resulted in their separation. Look at every person in the Bible, and I challenge you to find one who didn't sin. You won't find them, not one. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. It says, There is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the inequity of us all. The him there is Christ. The Lord punished the Messiah for the sin of us all. The one who, the one and only person who we read in the Bible who had no sin, was made sin on our behalf to rescue us from our separation from God. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory, which is a uh, reference from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Scriptures plainly tell us that sin separates us from God. But if sin is a trigger for our spiritual death, or is sin the result of something else? Is it, is it sin that is what brought us that spiritual death, or was sin, did it come from someplace else? What triggers sin in us? What motivated Eve to disobey God in the garden? Now listen to the advice of Paul that he gives young pastor Timothy about what triggers sin in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but denying its power, avoid these people. As we just read in James 1.12, those who are able to withstand their temptation are those who love God. But Paul tells Timothy here that people are lovers of self and lovers of money. Adam and Eve were lovers of wisdom, lovers of beauty and pleasure. The trigger for disobedience and sin is loving something else more than God. We withstand temptation by loving God the most. When we love something more than we love God, then we're, we succumb to that allure of temptation. In other words, the gateway for sin is idolatry, loving something more than we love God. The concept of idolatry is highlighted in the Bible as a really a big factor in our separation, separation of anyone from God. This idea is rooted in the first commandment that God had given the Israelites, which emphasizes the exclusive worship of the one true God. Let's read Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6. Do not have any other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down in worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Bringing the consequences of the fathers in equity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me 
and keep my commands. This was the very first commandment that God gave Israel. God warns them against the worship of anything in heaven, in the earth, under the earth, in the water. Simply don't put any created thing before the creator of those things. In this command, we see the emphasis placed on wholehearted devotion to God by acknowledging his sovereignty and not attributing any divine qualities to anything that he created. There are six signs. We talk about six degrees of separation. There are six signs of separation through idolatry. First, as we just saw in Exodus, where are you seeking guidance? Where do we seek our guidance from? Do we go to God first or we do, do we go someplace else? Do we go to someone else? Do we go to something else to find guidance in our life? Do we put something before God? Do we go to God in prayer first? Do we go to the word first to seek guidance? As we seek, as we seek those things from others, it's putting something before God. Are we creating our own gods? Now, creating our own gods, we can't make an idol for ourselves. Are we creating other gods? What are we giving the power of our life over to? Are we giving that power over to money? Are we spending our life seeking money? Are we spending our life seeking possessions? Are we giving the power of our life over to politics? Or are we seeking or in our life God? Are we creating other gods ahead of the God of all creation? Who are we serving and worshiping? Now, what we serve and what we worship is what we become. God said, don't bow down and serve any idol. Now, idols require practices. If we serve pleasure, it's okay to have pleasurable things in your life, but is that the main focus of your life, to seek pleasure in your life? Or are those things, sometimes we go after things that give us pleasure and we push God aside because we don't want God to deny us that pleasure, or we're seeking power. We want to be a powerful person and even you know, take the place of God in our life. But those things, those idols, require practices, things that we have to do to get there and to get those things. Are we making and serving and worshiping those other things in our life above God? How will your children be influenced by your idolatry, as we just read in Exodus? Our idolatry will be followed by our children. Our children emulate us. And as it said there in that passage, to the third and fourth generation, God visits that upon them because they're following our practices. Do you want your children to seek after pleasure, seek after money, seek after possessions, put those things in their life 
as idols be replace God in their life as being number one? That is visited upon them. They will follow your practices and become like you. Look at Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, Cain followed his family's practices, put himself first. He was selfish, killed his brother because he didn't get the recognition that he wanted. Can you love God and an idol? Again, as it's said in, in Exodus, idolatry is hatred towards God. God said those who hate him. When you put an, an something else ahead of God, you are putting, you are showing your hatred towards God. Those who practice idolatry show that hatred. Choosing something over God is hating or loving something more than you love God is the opposite of loving God, right? If you love something more, then you hate the other thing that you don't love as much. Are you denying God's love to you and your children? We deny ourselves and our children the love of God by putting other things ahead of God. And God is able, as he said here, to show his love to a thousand generations over and over and over again. But if we put something before God, we don't receive that love. Idolatry is a broader sense, as it involves placing anything above God in one's affections, our allegiance, or our priorities. It can be anything. It it can be a car. It can be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be, as I said, pleasure. It could be, you know, having entertaining yourself and seeking that entertainment, if you put it before God, it becomes an idol. And it can manifest in all forms of material possessions, wealth, power, in relationships, or any other created thing taking precedence over God and worshiping it and obeying it instead of God. Idolatry is a significant factor that leads humans to sinfulness and rebellion against God. The connection between idolatry and disobedience to God is evident in Scripture, and it shows humanity that we turn away from our Creator and we worship and we follow those things that were created for us and for our benefit by God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7-14, through 14, Paul shows that idolatry is the gateway to all other sins. He says, don't become idolaters as some of them were. Some of them, this Paul is going back to to Israel when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. When he came back down, they were already worshiping an idol. They'd made themselves a golden calf and they were worshiping that calf just during the time Moses was gone from them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. They were following the practices of that idol, drinking, eating, partying. Most of the time in those ancient times, these 
idol worshipers required these kinds of obedience and practices that they needed to follow. Verse 8, let us not commit sexual immorality. Again, this was part of idol worship, as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 died. That was the recompense that they received for their idolatry when Moses was on Sinai. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. They grumbled because Moses had brought them out into the desert and they said he brought them out there to die. They grumbled against Moses. They were putting their own comfort, their own joy, their own satisfaction, their own needs ahead of what God was doing for them. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction. These things were written first for the Jews, written for their instructions not to do these things, but also written for us, on whom the ends of the ages have come. They've come upon us. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. So then, my dear friends, flee idolatry. Paul draws from Israel's history to warn the Corinthians about idolatry. Paul connects idolatry to other sins. He references Israel's failures. He highlights that their idolatry was often accompanied with other sinful behaviors because idols require these practices and behaviors. When we follow something else, make that a priority in our life, it requires something from us. And Paul is saying, flee from idolatry. In verse 14, he's emphasizing that the urgency of avoiding idolatrous practices because they lead to a chain reaction of other sins. The call to flee idolatry is a practical admonition to distance ourselves from any form of false worship or devotion that could compromise our commitment to God and lead us to a moral and spiritual falling away. By saying this, Paul is presenting idolatry as a starting point that can lead to the downward spiral into other sinful behaviors. Now, Paul specifically is emphasizing the urgency of fleeing from these idolatrous practices. His focus on idolatry shows it's a gateway to sin and eternal separation from God. So one thing that's important for us to see here is that while the idolatry of humanity separates us from God, it also separates us from humanity. This is a key point for us to understand when we look at the purpose of God in the world and the purpose of God in the church. The body of Christ, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. And God created man and woman, 
and it was good. Then it went bad. And God has, in his creation, we became separated from him. Now, the story that we see in the Bible is God making his creation good again. What Everything that we're going through from that point on is that God is in the process of making that creation good again by bringing reconciliation to us and to his creation. So I hope that this study, what we went through, was beneficial. I hope that it is strengthening your faith and your confidence in Christ, because Christ redeems us from that separation. It is in Christ that we have reconciliation with God and spiritual life. If you feel that this study can help others, please share the video. Thank you for being here, and I pray that God's grace will keep you in his love always. Thank you.